everyone, Saranai. Welcome to our Ilpoya Dhamma session. Heartfelt good wishes to all of you on this Uposatha day. The title for today's Dhamma session is The Magnitude of Sansara, and we will be closely examining the teachings of the Buddha in the Anamataga Vagga. So, this is from chapter 15 of the Sangyutta Nikaya or Linked Discourses. The purpose of examining this particular chapter is to gain a stronger understanding of the bigger picture, the context for the Buddha's teachings. <coughs> what he realized through his Buddha jnana or special knowledges with regards to samsara and what that means for all of us with regards to this whole mass of suffering. So clarifying this particular part of the Buddha's teaching really helps us to better understand the first noble truth of suffering, recognize the second noble truth of the origin of suffering as craving, and wisely abandon craving in order to realize the cessation of suffering. And so we develop the Noble Eightfold Path as the way out of suffering. So as we go through the similes, what will become more apparent is this. So this session should be relatively straightforward in terms of contemplating the similes of the Buddha. And we will draw on and include some of our previous sutta meditations and their insight pathways in order to really connect with this Dhamma and, and to do the meditations. So the intention for this session is to really apply ourselves to contemplating these similes and develop or deepen our practice. So what we'll cover today is we'll cover our usual tips and reminders. We'll run through those so we get the most out of this Dhamma session. We'll introduce the Anamattavagga or Anamattaga Vagga. And this whole chapter is about conveying the magnitude of samsara, being without dis discoverable beginning or even end. And so we'll also look at the spiritual faculties and dependent origination in this initial part as well. Then we'll deep dive into many, but not all of the Buddha similes in this chapter. So we'll explore the direct relationship between the vastness or the magnitude of samsara and the immeasurable mass of suffering. So we'll get a feel for the length of an eon and also examine how to apply these similes to penetrate and know and see the, the Four Noble Truths. And we will meditate during this session. So there are two particular meditations that we can do together to unlock this Dhamma. And we'll end with the words of Sumedha Teri. So she was a noble Arahant who particularly took great heed of the Buddha's words when it came to these particular similes. So we'll use that as encouragement towards making spiritual progress and sharpening our spiritual faculties. So tips and reminders, usually we always say keep an open mind. When we hear the Buddha's words, we have heard some of it before and other times it's new or it's scratching up against something that we've thought we've understood. And so keeping an open mind helps to ensure that we cultivate the right view and not veer off the noble path. Also be okay with not understanding everything. This was something that I was reflecting a lot this particular week because one of the most frustrating things is when we don't understand. And particularly we don't understand where the Buddha is coming from, what it really means. 
And it's not until arahantship that this trouble will, will go away, that, that we'll find it easier to understand things. And also when our spiritual faculties sharpen and we make progress, then it's a little easier. So it's good to be reasonably okay with not understanding everything. And even a little that we understand is good at times. Of course, remember, we're all learners. So understanding that we're trainees, sakers on this path, we're helping each other, helping each other as Kalyanamittas, walking this path together. And then let's apply ourselves to the meditation. We have the opportunity to meditate this session. And so really apply ourselves using our own examples to get that direct experience and insight into this Dhamma. And that's how we do it from our own experience. And then lastly, as always, we have good wishes for everyone. We start with the, the gratitude for the Buddha, the Dhamma and the Sangha, the noble ones in the pure abode, the Sudhavasa, all our friends and family who help and support us to walk this noble path, including those who are on this Zoom session today. We go together. So Anamattaga, what does this actually mean? And why do we look at the, all these suttas together? So Anamattaga is translated as one whose beginning is unknown, without beginning or end. And it's the epithet for samsara. The other thing that's also said is that it's not ending in the deathless. That's a less common translation. However, it lends itself to this constant cycle of birth and death over and over again in samsara. So we don't exit samsara, then what happens is we continue to be death-bound rather than realizing nibbana, which is the deathless. In any case, what we can see from this word anamatthaga is that being this descriptive term for samsara, it means that as a being in samsara, we are constantly encountering this endless cycle of rebirth across realms of existence without noble beginning or end. And so this is really supported by the key phrases that the Buddha uses. So the Buddha talks about anamatta goyang samsara, this samsara is without discoverable beginning. So that's something that's across most of these suttas in this chapter. Then he talks about puba koti na panyayati avija nivaranana satanang tanha sanyojanana sandavatang Sangsaratang. So that's in Pali. In English, that translates as a first point is not discerned of beings roaming and wandering, unhindered by ignorance and fettered by craving. So these phrases, they're in every sutta, I think, almost every sutta in this particular chapter. And the reason why I call it out and even read it in Pali is because it may, may trigger something in each of us as those words go in. And we will read them out again as we go through. But what we shall see is that if we understand this particular aspect of samsara, that there's not a first point that can be discerned of how long we've been roaming through samsara, then this infinite vastness is being conveyed by the Buddha. And then we start to understand that our bondage to infinite dukkha is also part of that. If we remain bound through our kamma, to samsara, then that's what we can expect, immeasurable dukkha. So our frame of reference for dukkha is usually limited to a single lifetime and usually this specific lifetime. 
This dukkha we associate with physical, verbal, and mental afflictions. And that can range from disagreeable scenarios or even unfavorable experiences to many, many different kinds of misfortunes or losses. And so we take it as very unique to us and very personal. And in doing so, we consider all of this dukkha we experience in this lifetime as very weighty, very significant, and at times personally crushing. But it's if you read into the context of Buddha's teaching, all that dukkha that we talk about in this lifetime, it's a drop in the ocean when you start understanding where the Buddha is coming from, when he speaks about this magnitude of samsara, the enormity of the dukkha that is linked with that. And this is all because we're hindered by ignorance and fettered by craving. We misapprehend this whole predicament. So samsara is on an infinite and almost inconceivable scale with no beginning nor end. So it's really good to reflect on that. And so this session is really going into that, becoming a bit more certain about that and using the Buddha similes to see that. So that's why when people say, or when the Buddha himself says, Stream entry is so precious, so valuable, it cuts off a significant, if not inconceivable, amount of dukkha. One is left with a maximum of seven lifetimes, if not less, depending on one's spiritual faculties. So when you enter the stream, you literally cut off this massive amount of lifetimes of dukkha. So this understanding is fundamental to spiritual awakening. Because it means we start to understand this bigger predicament, this dire predicament. And we want to find out the cause and the way out that leads to the complete ending of this whole mass of suffering. So the magnitude of samsara is not emphasized enough in the current practice of Buddha's teachings. And that is a great loss because one, it reinforces right view. Two, it lends so much weight to why we need to develop the noble path and practice, providing this sense of urgency. And one might ask, how does the Buddha know this about samsara? Well, having developed the Buddha jnanas or special knowledges, the Buddha is able to know and see innumerable past lives, as well as the passing away and reappearance of beings, as well as many other knowledges. Initially, what we do is we take this on board out of confidence or conviction towards the Buddha, we apply our sadha indriya, our faculty of conviction or, or confidence in the Buddha. But later on, if we develop and become accomplished, and some of us may already be accomplished in this knowledge of recollection of past lives, pube nibhasa anusati jnana, then we can directly know and see for ourselves that this is a relentless cycle of rebirth in samsara. And there is suffering experienced in every birth. So we discussed some of this in our last Poya session, particularly about these three knowledges. And this was the first knowledge that we went through. So we can't talk about this without talking about a little bit about dependent origination. So when the Buddha says we roam and wander in samsara, hindered by ignorance and fettered by craving, this links back to dependent origination or paticca samuppada. So there's so many suttas that we've referenced before and many others that explain the links in dependent origination. And we can revisit this one called Gautama Sutta. It's in Sanyutta Nikaya, chapter 12, discourse number 10. 
And this is where the Buddha explains to the monks how he awakened when he was the Bodhisattva by understanding dependent origination. And he gives details of what he contemplated about how the world has fallen into trouble or suffering. So he says, Bhikkhus, before my enlightenment, while I was still a Bodhisattva, not yet fully enlightened, it occurred to me, alas, this world has fallen into trouble in that it is born, ages, and dies. It passes away and is reborn. Yet it does not understand the escape from this suffering headed by aging and death. When now will an escape be discerned from this suffering headed by aging and death? Then because it occurred to me, when what exists does aging and death come to be? By what is aging and death conditioned? Then because through wise contemplation, there took place in me a breakthrough by wisdom. When there is birth, aging and death comes to be. Aging and death has birth as its condition. And then it goes on and he talks about what conditions birth, is existence, then clinging, craving, feeling, contact, the six sense fields, name and form, consciousness. And then lastly, when what exists, does volitional formations come to be? By what is volitional formations conditioned? Then because through wise contemplation there took place in me a breakthrough by wisdom. When there is ignorance, volitional formations come to be. Volitional formations has ignorance as its condition. So we see from this that ignorance and craving are two of the 12 links in Patichasamupada, this dependent origination. And there are many explanations for both ignorance and craving. And in relation to ignorance, it includes references to being able to destroy the taints, uh, being able to see through the perversions or corruptions in the mind and overcoming wrong view or having wrong view. And then there's also the Avija Sutta, which is in Sanyutta Nikaya and particularly chapter 56, discourse number 17. And it relates to not knowing the four noble truths. And one of the bhikkhus asked the Buddha, Venerable Sir, it is said, ignorance, ignorance. What is ignorance, Venerable Sir? And in what way is one immersed in ignorance? And the Buddha responds, Bhikkhu, not knowing suffering, not knowing the origin of suffering, not knowing the cessation of suffering, not knowing the way leading to the cessation of suffering. This is called ignorance, Bhikkhu. And it is in this way that one is immersed in ignorance. Therefore, Bhikkhu, an exertion should be made to understand this is suffering and goes through the Four Noble Truths. And what you see is when we go through these similes in this session, we're making that exertion towards understanding the Four Noble Truths. And it really begins, as we'll see, with the First Noble Truth of Suffering. And then when it comes to craving, we've discussed this many times before. It usually starts with Abhinandati, Abhiwadati, Ajosaya, Titati. So we take delight, welcome or express, and remain holding. So what we misapprehend are these corruptions in the mind, beauty, permanency, pleasure or happiness, and taking something as me and mine, self. So when we misapprehend that, what we forget or we don't see is that it is actually repulsive. It doesn't last. It's painful and therefore not worth taking as me and mine, non-self or not self. So recognizing and understanding the magnitude or the vastness of samsara puts weight 
it lends weight <coughs> towards the severity of our predicament. And also to look at what are we really attached to? What are we craving? And to really look at the dependent arising more deeply. So if we consciously or unconsciously believe that samsara is only this lifetime or a few lifetimes, then it becomes an entirely different proposition. And this is not what the Buddha taught. Buddha didn't teach that, that it's only one lifetime or, or just a few. He's actually talking about this vastness with no beginning and no end. So with proper understanding of the magnitude of samsara, which we'll focus on in this session, and being the owner and heir of our actions, bound to our kamma, then we, we have the right view. With this right view, it becomes, for us, mission critical to develop wisdom regarding the Four Noble Truths, particularly towards developing the Noble Eightfold Path. So this is how a true sense of urgency naturally arises in us. We start to turn away from the world. We see danger in sensual pleasures genuinely. We become increasingly dispassionate and more equanimous about conditions. And we lean strongly towards renunciation. That becomes more natural. And we start to really understand this Dhamma. And so it eventually culminates in cessation and ultimately relinquishment of all. And so we realize Nibbana. So one other aspect before we launch into the similes is about the five spiritual faculties, because there's also reference to this Anamataka. So when we develop the noble path, we are always sharpening our spiritual faculties because we need their help in order to complete the path and realize Nibbana. So the spiritual faculties, as we know, they're conviction, so sadda, energy, which is the virya, mindfulness, sati, concentration, which is the samadhi indriya, and then wisdom, panya indriya. So in this apana or apana sutta, this is Sangyutta Nikaya chapter 48, discourse number 50, when the Buddha asked Venerable Sariputta whether a noble disciple doubts the Buddha or his teachings, Venerable Sariputta answers that a noble disciple has sadda or conviction and also develops the other spiritual faculties. Now, I'm not going to read out the whole sutta, but the reference that is really interesting is the one that relates to the faculty of wisdom. So Venerable Sariputta makes this reference to Anamataga and also Sangsara when he talks about developing the faculty of wisdom. So he says, It is indeed to be expected, Venerable Sir, that a noble disciple who has conviction, whose energy is aroused, whose mindfulness is established and whose mind is concentrated, will understand thus. This samsara is without discoverable beginning. A first point is not discerned by beings roaming and wandering on, hindered by ignorance and fettered by cravings. But the remainderless fading away and cessation of ignorance, the mass of darkness, this is the peaceful state. This is the sublime state. That is the stealing, the stilling of all formations, the relinquishment of all acquisitions, the destruction of craving, dispassion, cessation, nibbana. That wisdom of his, Venerable Sir, is his faculty of wisdom. So the reason we look at this is because this sutta shows that understanding the magnitude or vastness of samsara helps us. It's part of developing our faculty of wisdom. And therefore, part of what we need towards penetration of the Four Noble Truths 
and also towards the cessation of ignorance and the destruction of craving. This is a huge part of it. Otherwise, you miss part of the important bit of the picture. All the things that help us to liberate from samsara and realize nibbana is also part of this. So let's start looking at the similes in this chapter. So the first one is the simile of grass and wood, and it's called the Tinakata Sutta. This is uh, chapter 15, discourse number one. So the Buddha says, suppose because a man would cut up whatever grass, wood, branches, and foliage there are in this Jambudipa and collect them together into a single heap. Having done so, he would put them down saying for each one, this is my mother, this is my mother's mother. And the sequence of that man's mother's and grandmothers would not come to an end, yet the grass, wood, branches, and foliage in this jumble deeper would be used up and exhausted. For what reason? Because, because this sansara is without discoverable beginning, the first point is not discerned of beings roaming and wandering on, hindered by ignorance and fettered by craving. For such a long time, because you have experienced suffering, anguish, and disaster, and swelled the cemetery. It is enough to experience revulsion towards all formations, enough to become dispassionate towards them, enough to be liberated from them. So when we look at this first simile, we see that the Buddha is giving this simile to highlight and impress upon us how inconceivably long this journey of transmigrating from birth to birth has been. For us, it's still difficult to fathom that we had countless mothers and grandmothers as we roamed and wandered in Sansara. For us, it's almost impossible to imagine even gathering all the wood, all the grass, branches and foliage of one great continent into a massive heap. And then to try to comprehend that we would still be counting mothers and grandmothers after using all that up. And we see that the Buddha links to the experience of suffering, anguish and disaster over an inconceivably long period. So we can't help but also see the temporary nature of existence, this anicca or impermanent nature that contributes to the suffering. If we ask ourselves, how many mothers and grandmothers do we need to count from our past lives in order to see this predicament we find ourselves in? How many more mothers and grandmothers do we need to add to this massive heap of grass and wood? if we continue to exist in samsara. So you can see if we penetrate what the Buddha is saying in this simile, it would help us to have this revulsion or disgust, this nibida quality, this dispassion or detachment, and want to be liberated from all these formations and conditions. So that's the first simile. The next simile is the simile of earth and it's described in this Patavi Sutta and it's very similar to the earlier one. So what we can see is that the Buddha is giving us different but similar, similar but different similes as a way to help us connect to this Dhamma. Certain similes may resonate more than others. And so in this one, he uses the simile of a man would reduce this great earth to balls of clay uh, the size of jujube kernels and put them down saying for each one, this is my father, this is my father's father. And the sequence of that man's fathers and grandfathers would not come to an end. 
yet this great earth would be used up and exhausted. And then it repeats the same thing about the reasoning and, and wandering through samsara and all that. So with this particular simile, it's also unfathomable for us to reduce the great earth into small little clay balls and counting out our fathers and our grandfathers and then exhausting that much earth. Even if we were to think if we were sitting in a playground and it has a sand pit and we have some water nearby to help us mold these, the sand in the sand pit into little jujube-sized balls, the idea of doing that seems like a lot, even just a, a sand pitfall. So when you think about Buddha's talking about the great earth, it's it's just the mind boggles. So this is another simile that you can use in a similar way. So the next sutta takes us a little bit further. And this one is slightly more detailed as a contemplation. And after we go through the Buddha's words, what I'd like to do is for us to meditate on this one. So this is about the simile of tears from the Asa Sutta. And it's an often quoted sutta. It begins with the Buddha posing a question to the bhikkhus. And he says, what do you think, bhikkhus, which is more? The stream of tears that you have shed as you've roamed and wandered on through this long course weeping and wailing because of being united with the disagreeable and separated from the agreeable, this or the water in the four great oceans. And then the, the bhikkhus respond very wisely. They say, as we understand the Dhamma taught by the Blessed One, Venerable Sir, the stream of tears that we have shed as we roamed and wandered through this long course, weeping and wailing because of being united with the disagreeable and separated from the agreeable, this alone is more than the water in the four great oceans. And then the Buddha endorses their answer and says, good, good, because it's good that you understand the Dhamma taught by me in such a way. The stream of tears that you have shed as you roamed and wandered through this long course, weeping and wailing because of being united with the disagreeable and separated from the agreeable, this alone is more than the water in the four great oceans. So, this is very interesting because uh, when I was looking on the internet, there are people in certain groups trying to work this out. And I, I find it really um, uplifting to see people try and figure this out. So as you can see on, on the slide, the graphic on the slide shows that there are four great oceans, uh, the Pacific, the Atlantic, the Indian, and the Arctic. And what they say on the internet is that the oceans make up more than 70% of the Earth's surface. And the great oceans hold about 97% of the Earth's water. So it's estimated that the volume of water in the oceans is approximately 1.3 billion cubic kilometers or 1.3 sextillion liters of water. Now, those numbers are huge. So that's a lot of water. And when you link that back to the simile and you think, can we even imagine crying that much in tears? So then you think, okay, so there's a, a, a fact on the internet that says um, from the American Academy of Ophthalmology that we produce 68 to 136 litres of tears every year. So if we use an average of uh, 70, for example, or if we say the average age is around 70 and we use an average of 100 litres, then that's approximately 7,000 litres per lifetime. So when you simply take 
the comparison, 1.36 trillion uh, liters, which actually works out to 1,300 trillion trillion liters in the great oceans versus 7,000 liters produced in one lifetime, you start to get a sense of the enormity of what Buddha is saying when it comes to how many tears or how much tears we shed over the long course of samsara. And remember, the Buddha says that the tears we have shared is more than the water in the four great oceans. So then the mind just can't, can't conceive it. So even if we simply contemplate, for example, just one moment where we've cried over something, some kind of misfortune or some kind of loss, maybe we've lost our job, maybe we've, we've got robbed, maybe there was a death of a pet, something like that, how much tears would we have shared? Is it a teaspoon? Is it a tablespoon? Is it a cup of tears? So that's something to contemplate. You know, Buddha's talking about something so massive. So the next part of uh, this particular sutta, the Buddha goes on to say what is meant by this weeping and wailing because of being united with what is disagreeable and separated from what is agreeable. So he says, for a long time, bhikkhus, you have experienced the death of a mother, experienced the death of a father, experienced the death of a brother, experienced the death of a sister, experienced the death of a son, experienced the death of a daughter, experienced the loss of relatives, the loss of wealth, experienced the loss through illness. As you have experienced this, weeping and wailing because of being united with the disagreeable and separated from the agreeable, the stream of tears that you have shed is more than the water in the four great oceans. And then he goes on and says the same ending about the reason. So here the Buddha is asking us to make that connection to the first noble truth of suffering, that we don't get to escape experiencing this death-bound nature of sansara. We're always united with what is disagreeable and separated what, with what we find agreeable. And so when the Buddha asks us to reflect on having experienced death of our loved ones, loss of relatives, loss of wealth, loss through illness, all these instances are a great source of, of great dukkha, things that we often lament about and ask, why did this happen? How could this be? And many of us who have experienced death of a loved one, we never really truly feel that we get over the vacuum of that loss, the constancy of sadness and sorrow. This is even more true when we don't have an understanding of the Four Noble Truths. So whatever we take delight in, whatever we value, whether it's people, material wealth, even health, when that becomes otherwise, we suffer. And we often misapprehend or forget about the fleetingness of pleasure in people, pleasure in material wealth, and even pleasure in good health. So these examples that the Buddha is giving us they align with the misfortunes or losses he describes as being born into this world. They all fall within the first three misfortunes outlined in the Vyasana Sutta. So if you remember Vyasana Sutta, that this is Ankutta Nikaya, chapter 5, discourse number 130, it says misfortune due to loss of relatives, so that's Nyati Vyasana, or misfortune due to loss of wealth, Volga Vyasana, or misfortune due to illness, Roga Vyasana, and of course the other two that are not mentioned with respect to this simile are Sila Vyasana, which is the misfortune regarding the virtuous behavior or lack of, of virtue, 
and misfortune regarding view or wrong view, which is the diti biasana. And so there's more dire consequences for those two, but we're not looking at those two today. So when we do this part of the contemplation on the Buddha's words, what we need to do is recollect the dukkha we have actually experienced over these losses of relatives, wealth, and, and health. Yes, they are personal losses, but after we recall them vividly, then we need to take a big step back and see the bigger picture of what the Buddha is showing us that we face a bigger predicament, that we're all subject to being born into samsara that has no beginning and no end. And so when we're caught in this net of samsara, we're not free of the loss of loved ones. All beings are ultimately death-bound. Aging and death is the condition for birth. We're not free of the loss of material wealth. This can be through fire, floods, kings, thieves, displeasing heirs. And we're not free of loss through illness. Our bodies, these particular bodies as human bodies, are the source of much pain and danger to arise for all kinds of affliction, all kinds of diseases, and more. So what it boils down to is a different way of calling out the first noble truth of suffering. As we know, birth is suffering, aging is suffering, sickness is suffering, death is suffering, pain, sadness, sorrow, lamentation, and despair is suffering. Separation from what is pleasing is suffering. Union with what is displeasing is suffering. Not getting what we want is suffering. And of course, these five aggregates subject to clinging is suffering. So what we can expect is that there is no end to this cycle if we don't liberate ourselves from samsara. If we don't penetrate Buddha Dhamma, what becomes very compelling is that we'll be stuck in this. And so we are compelled to find the way out of this predicament. That's why we're on this path. That's why we are suvicha, trying to be easy to instruct to the Buddha. And on the way to that realization, we ask, what is the cause or origin of this dukkha? Now, if we're meditating and the meditation is a good one, then the one key insight that comes when we contemplate is that all these things that we take delight, welcome, and remain holding on to, they're death-bound. They have this nature to age and die as conditioned phenomena. And where does that lead us? Shedding a whole stream of tears that is greater than the four great oceans. And it sounds so perverse, so weird, so unlikely that what we take delight in, what we love, is like that. But that's the truth. Like if you were to say to someone, what I love is aging and death, someone would say, what? And But that's the truth of it. If you see that in your meditation, you just say sadhu, sadhu, sadhu. So you take any example of a person, an object, any experience, what eventuates is this whole mass of suffering because what is born ages, sickens and dies. If we can see this, then we have right view. We see with wisdom the danger in craving these things, these conditioned things. If we get this insight, then what is the strongest intention? It's towards renunciation. So our right intention becomes or aligns with the right view. In this moment, we no longer want birth because it comes with aging, sickness and death and the whole mass of suffering. So... You're familiar. We we nabi nandati, nabi wadati, najosaya titati. We don't take delight. 
We don't welcome or express and we don't remain holding. We want to give up the craving for conditioned phenomena. We want to give up this dukkha. So we start to see the cessation of suffering. And then we realize the Buddha has shown us the way out of this whole mess of suffering is through developing the Noble Eightfold Path. Starting with right view, right intention, right speech, right action, right livelihood, right effort, right mindfulness, and right concentration. So you can see we already start to see the Four Noble Truths. And we can do this most certainly in our meditation. So if we train in this way, simply using this simile of tears, we naturally incline towards the Noble Eightfold Path. We want to complete the journey in this lifetime by developing, fully developing the Noble Eightfold Path to its completion. So this is a very good meditation and that's what we can do right now. So I'd like to take uh, probably about 20 minutes to half an hour to do this meditation because it's a very good one and it's quite straightforward. I put some instructions there and I'll go through. So the instructions for this meditation are from your own examples, recall the tears that have been shared. So it could be examples of death of loved ones, loss of relatives, loss of wealth, loss through illness. Recall as many examples as you, as you need to or simply one, but make it very vivid, very strong and really recall the shedding of tears. And then the second step is simply to reflect on the Buddha's words. The stream of tears that we have shared is more than the water in the four great oceans. So you can realize that it's not simply this lifetime it's more than that this samsaric journey is very long and then the third is you ask given the magnitude the vastness of samsara do i want to continue to roam and wander bound to this whole mass of suffering and then you contemplate the other noble truths because this initial part is really about the first noble truth of suffering to really see that this dukkha we see the dukkha then we see the dukkha is actually infinite through samsara and then we come and contemplate the other noble truths so take examples from your own experience it could be loss of pets family friends colleagues when we've lost our job when we lost wealth for a variety of reasons um, when we have loved ones or we ourselves have been afflicted with illness the key thing is really to connect with the experiences of misfortune or loss to really connect with the dukkha because when we do so, it's no longer the theory of it. No longer we're just reading out the words, but we're actually, this is very real for us. And then we're certain that this existence results in dukkha. And then with the second step, where we reflect on the stream of tears being more than the four great oceans, the easy part to this is if you have the knowledge of recollecting past lives, then you already know through direct experience that this simile of the Buddha is actually true that if you've recalled the dukkha of past births, then you've gained a partial glimpse of the magnitude of samsara. But even if you don't have that knowledge, then you lean on the Buddha's knowledge because through sadda, we, we can lean on the Buddha's knowledge because he has knowledge of past births and knowledge of the magnitude of samsara. And so being able to even fathom or cognize even a little bit of this inconceivable dhamma is very beneficial. So what we're literally doing in this meditation is connecting our own examples with the magnitude of samsara in all existences in this very long course that we've been existing in samsara. We have experienced this kind of dukkha over and over again. And so when we come to the third step, 
and we ask the question, do we want to continue with this? If we've contemplated correctly and we have the right view, then the answer is no. And the right intention will arise to renunciate, to actually give up the desire to, to come back into the world and condition phenomena and to have more of this whole mass of suffering. So if you get to this point, it's already a very powerful meditation. You can stop there. But if there's time in our meditation period, go further and contemplate the other noble truths because at that moment you've seen the first noble truth of suffering and what the Buddha says in the Gavampati Sutta is that if you see one of the noble truths, then you see the other noble truths as well. So in our meditation, in this instance, given that you see the first noble truth, then you ask the question, what caused this suffering to arise? What did I take delight in? What am I attached to? And then if you realize that everything that you thought was pleasing and agreeable is subject to change, ultimately death-bound, then we see what we're attached to is really subject to birth, aging, sickness, and death. And so the result will always be dukkha. And so at that moment, you genuinely want to give it up because you see the truth. And so you want to get out of the predicament. And so then you might ask, what does the Buddha say as the way out of suffering? And then at that moment, you realize you strongly want to develop this noble eightfold path because that means the cessation of suffering. And so you don't take anything outside of Nibbana. That is your third noble truth. So the steps are there. I'll leave them there. So we can do this meditation for, let's say, 20, 20 minutes. And I'll bring us out of the meditation when it's time. So again, Take your own examples, then reflect on the Buddha's words about the stream of tears being greater than the water of the four great ocean. Then ask, given the magnitude of samsara, do I want to continue to roam in samsara, bound to this whole mass of suffering? And then you contemplate the other uh, three noble truths. So let's do this meditation now. Teruan Saranai. Okay, we can come out of the meditation. I don't know how your meditation went, but there's a very deep sense of peace out of that one. Hopefully you had a very good meditation as well. So we only have a few more suttas to go through. And we'll go through some of these a little quicker because they're not really expanding much more. But the next discourse is called the Dugata Sutta. And it's slightly different again, but it's helpful because... It's helpful in deepening the practice towards compassion and understanding the magnitude of samsara again, but the perspective of it. So the Buddha says, he was dwelling at Savati, and he says, because this samsara is without discoverable beginning. A first point is not discerned of beings roaming and wandering on, hindered by ignorance and fettered by craving. Whenever you see someone in misfortune, in misery, you can conclude we too have experienced the same thing in this long course and then the same um, ending. For what reason? And samsara is without the beginning and so on. So this particular sutta is quite helpful towards correcting our view because when there are defilements present in each of us, we often make strong value judgments about other people. And rather than doing that, we can know that we too have experienced whatever misfortune, mis misery, in this long course as each and every other person or being 
uh, in this existence. It also helps to reduce conceit and arrogance and helps to reduce, of course, greed, hatred and delusion towards others. So there's another sutta straight after this one called the Sukhita Sutta. And in that case, it talks about someone who is happy and fortunate. And when there are defilements present, it's sometimes hard to have mudita for another person. But it's good to also remember that we too have experienced the same thing in this long course. And so this particular set of, of suttas is very good because it reminds us that we are brothers and sisters in, in this sansaric journey and not to be too quick to judge others for what they're going through, whether it is good or bad, but to understand in the grand scheme of things, this magnitude of sansara, there will be ups and downs, peaks and troughs, depending on one's karma. So the next sutta is called the Tinsamatta Sutta. And this is tremendously inspiring because following this teaching, the Buddha had given to 30 monks, all of them realized the fruit of arahanship. So at the time, they were at Rajagaha in the bamboo grove and 30 bhikkhus from Pava approached the Blessed One. All were forest dwellers, alms food eaters, rag robe wearers and triple robe wearers. Yet they were all still with fetters. Having approached, they paid homage to the Blessed One, sat down to one side. Then it occurred to the Blessed One, these 30 bhikkhus from Pava, they're forest dwellers, arms food eaters, rag robe wearers, triple robe wearers, yet all were still with fetters. Let me teach them the Dhamma in such a way that while they are sitting in these very seats, their minds will be liberated from the taints by non-clinging. So in this instance, you really see the Buddhanyana, that he has the ability to see if someone is ready and what to teach. And in this particular sutta, you really get the sense that he's teaching mind to mind. So what he says to the bhikkhus is, what do you think, bhikkhus? Which is more the stream of blood that you have shared when you were beheaded as you roamed and wandered on through this long course? This or the water in the four great oceans? And then they answer, as we understand the Dhamma taught by the Blessed One, Venerable Sir, the stream of blood that we have shed when we were beheaded, as we roamed and wandered through this long course, this alone is more than the water in the four great oceans. So this particular simile is indeed a very graphic one, and it's not for the faint-hearted. And you clearly see he, he's taught it to 30 ascetic monks. You know, they still had their fetters, but the uh, discipline that they had being arms food eaters, forest dwellers, rag robe wearers, their sila was very good. And yet they had still not realized final liberation. So Buddha used this particular simile as a way for them to contemplate, to realize the fruit of arahantship. This uh, particular account of these uh, 30 bhikkhus also appears in the Dhammapada. And I think there's also a Jataka story that tells about the background to these 30 monks as well. So you see that the Buddha, again, he uses this comparison to the four great oceans, but instead of tears or mother's milk, the Buddha is speaking of the stream of blood that has been shed when we were beheaded. So it's very, very graphic in that sense. The Buddha then goes on to say, good, good, because it's good that you understand the Dhamma taught by me in such a way, the stream of blood that you have shared when you were beheaded as you roamed and wandered on through this long course. This alone is more than the water in the four great oceans. For a long time, because you have been cows, you have been buffalo, you have been sheep, 
You have been goats, you have been deer, you have been chickens, and you have been pigs. For a long time you have been arrested as burglars, highwaymen, and adulterers. And when you were beheaded, the stream of blood that you shed is greater than the water in the four great oceans. And of course, he goes on to again expound about samsara being without a beginning, how we're fettered by craving and hindered by ignorance. And of course, when we see this simile, when we penetrate any of these similes, we start to have this dispassion, this revulsion, turning away from samsara and wanting to be liberated. So when he explains, the Buddha speaks in this particular sutta when he's just explained, he's talking about taking rebirth in animal realm. And he's also talking about being slaughtered, that these are the consequences of unwholesome action in the human realm. And we're subject, and also in the human realm, we're subject to the death penalty for, for certain things. So this particular sutta, as I've said, it's it's graphic. It's also quite visceral and confronting. But it lays it out for us that there are these dangers that are that are connected to being bound to our kamma and to continued existence in samsara. Like if we have the idea that we'll come back to exactly a very similar circumstance, it's almost dangerous to, to have that kind of idea. Like some people think if I offer enough dana, if I keep the five precepts, then uh, you know these things may not happen. But the problem is that the understanding of Dhamma goes deeper when you think about Titi Vyasana or Titi Vyasana, when you have the wrong view, or if your virtue isn't as good as you think it is, then it can be quite dire consequences. So this particular sutta, if you penetrate it, you can see the magnitude of samsara, the enormity of, of dukkha, and have a very strong sense of nibida, this revulsion or disgust uh, towards coming back then you you really are quite fortunate and so we may not see this like it's quite true we may not see this of the animal realm like if if we're the type of people that just focus on pets and beloved pets and having a very kind owner then we don't see what it's like in the animal realm so if you observe animals in the wild you start to notice that fear is ever present fear of losing limbs fear of attack fear of losing lives, fear of being hit by a stick, um, fear of predators and, and hunters. And if you look at the news in, in the past couple of years, even, even this year, you realize how many animals have been slaughtered for one reason or another. It could be because of the food production or even recreation, such as hunting or sport. It could be because of disease or, or reasons why one slaughters because of disease. What, what even happened during COVID, and then also legal reasons or even wrong views regarding animal sacrifices. These are things that were done in the past and are still being done now. And so a significant number of animals are slaughtered. So it's not what we would wish for to be reborn into an animal realm. Now, in the suttas in particular, the Sansapaniya Sutta that we've uh, referred to before, this is Anguttamikaya chapter 10, discourse number 216. We know that beings are the owners of their kamma, heirs of their kamma. They have kamma as their origin, kamma as their relative, kamma as their resort. Whatever kamma they do, good or bad, they are its heirs. So if our bodily, verbal, mental actions or kamma is crooked, 
then we can expect our destination to be crooked and our rebirth to be crooked. And so this crooked destination and crooked rebirth, what the Buddha says is there's two destinations. One is the painful, exclusive, exclusively painful hells. And the other one is the species of creeping animals. So he gives examples like the snake, the scorpion, the centipede, the mongoose, the cat, the mouse, the owl. So any animal that creeps away from people. So that's the animal realm. And then when it comes to the human realm, well, we know even through our legal system that one can expect imprisonment, penalties, and in some cases, of course, the death penalty for illegal and criminal activity. So in the past, there would have been beheadings and things like that. Um, now, different methods. But you can see that even if you go to some of these suttas where it talks about the karmic consequences of killing, the rebirth is to the lower realms. But if you're reborn in the human realm, you'll have a short lifespan. Or if you attack someone or use a weapon, then rebirth is also to the lower realms. And if you're reborn as a human, as a minimum, you would experience sickliness. And so if we've developed the knowledge of recollecting past lives, you can already see that for yourselves, that out of, or out of sadda, you can also rely on the Buddha's vast knowledge. But the contemplation of this particular simile is a powerful one, and it can lead to attainments of path and fruit. My strong recommendation is when you develop this particular meditation is to ensure you're connected to the Four Noble Truths, like what we've practiced in this session, and not to simply meditate on the simile alone. For lay practitioners, it's particularly important because we don't want any unbeneficial side effects. And another suggestion would be, if you meditate on this simile, make sure you cultivate metta afterwards. It's just a safeguard. And so we're coming to the end of the similes. The last few that we're going to go through are, are grouped into six suttas or grouping six suttas together. So they're all about family ties. And so the Buddha says, because this sansara is without discoverable beginning, a first point is not discerned of beings roaming and wandering unhindered by ignorance and fettered by craving. It is not easy because to find a being who in this long course has not previously been your mother, previously been your father, previously been your brother, previously been your sister, previously been your son, and previously been your daughter. And for what reason? And of course, the Buddha says similar thing. So this group of suttas is not often spoken about. Some people, when they hear it, they, they go, really? And But it's an important reflection because for all of us, it's very hard to imagine that we have all in this long course previously been mother, father, brother, sister, son, daughter to one another. And as the Buddha says, it's not easy to find a being who hasn't. And this applies to humans and non-humans. So it's another set of suttas that boggles the mind. It sends it into a bit of a standstill, like when you really try to fathom it. How long must we have been on this journey? If you think about even on the planet Earth right now, they say it's seven to eight million billion people. And so that in itself boggles the mind. But if you think in the, all the 31 realms of existence, then then it starts to really, really boggle the mind. Also, this is another encouragement to contemplate why the Buddha says, Kure su do in the Karaniya Metta Sutta. We know in English this means not to hanker for families or groups. 
not to desire families or groups. Um, it's a block to metta. The thing is that even in each lifetime, we are very attached to our loved ones, to our family members. You know, even in this lifetime, it's apparent. We take them as me and mine. We derive pleasure from being around them. And for this reason, we misapprehend and stay bound to samsara. We consciously or unconsciously desire to come back, to exist with our beloved family members. And so we either forget or we don't know in, in certain people's cases that, you know, we're deathbound. What is uh, birth is the condition for aging and death. So in this long journey in Sansara, it's not easy to find someone who hasn't previously been all these different roles to us. If we realize even the truth of this predicament, what this simile is telling us, then it's another opportunity to abandon wrong view and to develop the right view. It We still respect our families, honor our families in this lifetime, but we really take a closer look at these bonds, bonds to family, bonds to loved ones. In the meditation, when you when you do meditate on it, it's good to see that. And really what comes up, what we realize that we don't understand is that these attachments mean we're really attached of to everything that has the nature to age, sicken, and die. So if we don't see through this, then we will continue to roam and wander on, hindered by ignorance and fettered by craving, subject to the whole mass of suffering. So it's very powerful. So those are all most of the suttas that were in the chapter. And we can end with these um, verses from Sumedha Theri. It's a very um, noble arahant. Uh, she understood the significance of the Buddha similes and expounded on their importance. Um, she emphasized in these particular verses, not the one, not just the ones about Anamataga, so without beginning or end, but she also earlier on she referenced similes, the Buddha similes, in relation to danger in sensual pleasures and, and more. So we know from the Terigata that uh, she was born the daughter of a king. And when she came of age, she met uh, her parents introduced her to another king. But Sumedha, she wanted to ordain. She was frequently associating with nuns, inclining towards the Dhamma path. And eventually she cut off her own hair. And through developing her mind, she focused on the perception of foul or repulsive. So the, she did Asuba Bhavana. And she attained the first jhana concentration. In the Theragate, tells that her parents uh, tried to introduce again to the king, and uh, this king that I guess they wanted her to get married, maybe. And at that time, she converted them all towards the Dhamma path, and then she got permission to enter the order of the Sangha. And so after that, shortly, she became an arahant. So it's very inspiring. We also learn from the Theriyapadana that. Uh, these are the legends or past life deeds of, of uh, senior nuns that at the time of Kornagamana Buddha, she and her friends, they agreed to have a large monastery built and they offered it to the Buddha and the Sangha. And at the time of Kasapa Buddha, she was born into a rich family and she was friends with the seven daughters of King Kiki. So he was at that time of Kasapa Buddha, the king of Benares. 
So let's read out her words. Long is the cycle of birth and death for fools. They cry again and again, without beginning or end, for the death of the father, the death of the brother, and one's own death. Tears, mother's milk, blood. You move along in the cycle of birth and death, without beginning or end. Bear in mind the pile of bones of all these sentient beings going through one life after another. Bear in mind that all the tears, mother's milk and blood could fill the oceans. Bear in mind the pile of bones of one world cycle would be just as abundant. Sansaric existence is without beginning or end, as vast as the land of Janbudipa. Even if the earth was made into little balls the size of a jujube seed, it still would not add up to all the mothers among mothers. Bear in mind all the grass, wood, branches and foliage carried along since beginningless time, even if they were made into twigs, each one, each only the size of four fingers, they would still not add up to all of the fathers among fathers. So you can see she's summarized many of the similes that we've gone through. And we can use these verses as encouragement towards understanding the magnitude of samsara, the enormity of suffering that we experience and in this samsaric journey. We can pay our respects to the Buddha, the Dhamma and the Sangha, and we can also gratitude to any help we receive from the noble ones. And we can share the merit with all sentient beings. May all beings be happy and well. May all beings be free from suffering. Blessings of the Triple Gem. Better one, Saturday night.